yeah, I broke through a river up in Sacklick Fjord. We were uh, going up through a very narrow canyon. And when we were near the top and I was scouting ahead, I broke through this ice and I almost got, I was being pulled under the water because it was uphill. And I had my snowshoes on with the crampons and everything, right? I almost did not get out of that hole alive. That's Canadian explorer Ray Zahab. And this is One Ocean Expeditions presents Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. We left Simpson about June the 10th with the fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that Indian oral history is very strong. And we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. A small ship expedition cruise specialist, One Ocean Expeditions offers one-of-a-kind marine travel experiences in the remote regions of the world. Explore a range of innovative itineraries and discover the One Ocean difference by visiting oneoceanexpeditions.com today. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. Explore is the podcast where we talk to explorers of all kinds from all walks of life about how Canada, its landscape, its people and history have shaped their lives, their adventures and their understanding of the world around us. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society at 50 Sussex Drive in Ottawa. We're overlooking one of the world's great exploration routes, the Ottawa River. I'm your host, David McGuffin. I'm a journalist, a former CBC Africa correspondent, CTV News China correspondent. I did stints in Moscow and Rome, and I've been to over 40 countries, including conflict zones like Afghanistan, Somalia, Congo. Most recently, I was senior editor with NPR News in Washington, D.C., but now I'm back in Canada, immersing myself deeply in Canadiana through the eyes of some of this country's greatest explorers. Our guest on this edition of Explore is Royal Canadian Geographical Society Explorer-in-Residence, Ray Zahab. Ray, to put it mildly, is a bundle of energy. He's an ultramarathoner, an extreme adventurer. He's an educator, speaker, and author. He's run right across some of the world's hottest deserts. We're talking about the Sahara Desert. We're talking about the Gobi Desert in China, the Namib in Southern Africa. We're talking about the Atacama in Chile, where temperatures reach upwards of 50 degrees Celsius. He once led a Guinness world record-breaking trek on foot to the South Pole, as well as expeditions across some of the harshest terrains in the world, including many in our own Canadian Arctic. So without further ado, here's RCGS Explorer-in-Residence Ray Zahab with me, David McGuffin, on Explore. So you are the Royal Canadian Geographical Society's newest uh, explorer in residence, yes, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, and presumably that means more exploring and less in residence, hopefully. I, I, you know what? I don't really know what it means, to be perfectly honest with you. I, my fascination with the organization obviously comes from the things that I do. And it's been sort of a, I guess you could say a theme for me throughout my sort of adventure career. It's not that the ignorance is bliss, but in a lot of ways, when you're doing stuff and you're focused on a goal and you have an idea in your head of why you do the things that you do, they very organically sort of, for lack of a better term, show themselves or display themselves. So I was already, for the last 15 expeditions or whatever it's been, I've already been sharing my expeditions live using satellite with students around the world. I've been wanting to engage with people from my expeditions take them to places that perhaps nobody would ever been before in, in some of the cases and very few people in some of the other cases and share what these environments and these places look like using social media, mainstream media. You know this from us together doing stuff in the, right. in the past. Yeah. 
so you know, I, the RCGS, it, it, it's just a perfect fit, right? You yeah. know, and then I, you know, when I discovered RCGS, yeah. it was through Kanjo Education, collaborating on some ideas for right. this eighteen hundred and fifty kilometer run I did across Namibia, across the desert. Fantastic. And I said, geez, I mean, I'm already doing this stuff. Yeah. Let's do more of this stuff. So, and so one thing happened. This is a another. natural community for you, yeah, basically. Totally. Right? This is like when you're here, yeah. you're with your people. So you're at a point now where you're about to go out on another expedition, mm-hmm. which is a really fun period. It can be frustrating. There's a lot of things going on. I know when I would plan my trips as a correspondent, it's, you're kind of peeling back the layers of the onion, right? And it's like, oh, I can do this and I can't do this. And you're heading to Kamchatka. You've talked about the ends of the earth. That's kind of one of the ends of the earth, isn't it? Definitely. Like ring of fire, volcanoes. You know, ring of fire, volcanoes. Uh, edge you of know, the Pacific Ocean. When I, when I started constructing the route, some of the primary goals that we had set for ourselves, you know, for me, it's if I can go coast to coast, I will. On an expedition, I kind of like that finite, you know, there's a measurable geography there. Or when I'm crossing a desert, I'll try to go to what are the recognized when I did the Atacama Desert. It was 1,200 kilometers north to south. I ran solo. I had limited resupplies daily. I was resupplied, but, you know, every 20, 30, 50 kilometers, I would meet up with my crew. And I'd be most of the time running cross-country navigating. What I did with that expedition was... I planned my route based around what the people of Chile saw as the Atacama Desert. I did my research for years leading up to it, National Geographic, everything else, 1,000K. The desert's roughly 1,000 kilometers long. Chileans were like, no, it's 1,200 kilometers long. It goes from here to here. So I said, okay, well, then I'm going to run the whole 1,200K. So I try to do Mm -hmm. things like in those boundaries, if you will, and it just gives me a goal. So with Kamchatka, we wanted to create a route that would be compelling for students that are following along that would be exciting. And it has that coastal feel. So I looked at, you know, myriad of ways of crossing Kamchatka, but to end up in those iconic volcanoes in that caldera, in that area, for me was so important to be near or as close as we'd be allowed to get to those volcanoes in the middle of February. I wanted to take students on that journey. So working back from there, that's how I constructed my, so my be, route across Kamchatka. You'll, you'll be scaling volcanoes. And you'll well, be, I wouldn't say we'll be scaling them. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the permission to. That time of year especially, it's been very difficult to mm-hmm. acquire the permissions that we need to be in that national park right. on the east coast um, of uh, Kamchatka. So we're doing the best we can to work with the powers that be to get as close access as we possibly can. Right. This is not a run, obviously. This is a trek. Is it? Yeah, unsupported, self-contained. Yeah. Uh, the snow's super deep. There's a million hazards. It's going to be on skis. We're using Alpine Touring skis, a shorter Alpine Touring ski, but with a three-pin boot, we'll use a Baffin flexible boot that's good to, you know, minus 60. I've used them up in the Canadian Arctic on uh, winter Arctic expeditions before. The ski setup and boot setup that we have has been used before. We'll have full skins the entire time for people out there that, that know about skiing. And really, it's a glorified snowshoe. And the snow is so deep that snowshoes are just not effective, you know, when you're when you're pulling up and down mountains and through passes. So body deep, like how deep? How oh, deep? super deep. Yeah. I mean, I, I it can be meters deep the snow on Kamchatka, yeah. and, and and it's it's a very interesting climate. Yeah. Because uh, for people that aren't sure where Kamchatka is, reminder: if you're over forty years of age and you played Risk yeah. like we did yeah. when yeah. we were kids, you know where Kamchatka is. Enough description. If you want to take Alaska, you, right? Yeah, exactly. If you exactly. want to take Alaska, you, to take Alaska, you gotta get Kamchatka. <laughs> Now, for those that have never heard of Kamchatka before, picture Florida sort of hanging off of Russia. Mm-hmm. And you know how it is, the weather changes in Florida coast to coast, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the weather in Kamchatka is even more unpredictable. So where I'm doing weather research on the coast, it's a completely different scenario in the mountains where really no one's really tracking the weather. Right. You know, there's nobody there, so no one's really tracking it. So there can be these sort of microclimates, if you will, that exist in these mountain valleys and stuff where you can have tons of snow and then be windblown ice in other areas. Wow, amazing. So you're looking at a month to do this? Is that about right? We're planning a month. Yeah. And it sounds like a significant amount of time. I mean, the distance is going to be somewhere between four and 500 kilometers. Yeah. It's nowhere near as long as most of my expeditions, but it's the conditions. It's when I went to the South Pole, uh, geographic South Pole with my two buddies. We went unsupported, self-contained. At the time, we were the fastest ever to get there from Hercules Inlet. And uh, we were hauling huge sleds from Hercules. And it took us for roughly 1,130 kilometers yeah. with huge sleds. Yeah. It took us a few minutes less than 34 days, wow. right? Yeah. This is half the distance, yeah. almost the same amount of time. 
And the reason we're putting that number out there is there's going to be some technical issues. I mean, right. there's avalanche is a huge issue. Um, you know, any of the technical aspects on the rivers that we'll be making our way down, that's most of it will be river travel. Uh, that as well can be issues. There can be exposed boulders, which slows you down tremendously when you're exposed boulders, deep snow, you know, broken ice. There's a million things that can slow us down. So we're trying to be very prudent with yeah. our time estimation and with our gear and approach this as safely as possible. And, you know, I push as hard as I can. Right. But I approach it as safely as I right. can. So unsupported means no one's dropping stuff in for you, you guys. What you got, you have. What we have, we have. Yeah, yeah and I, typically yeah. any cold weather expedition or Arctic expedition. Myself and, uh, and a good buddy of mine, Kevin Valley, we traversed Lake Baikal in Siberia in February 2010. Yeah, also um, very, very, very cold. Russia, yeah. yeah, very cold. And, uh, yeah, you know, not as cold as the Canadian Arctic. When it goes off in the Arctic, yeah. in the Canadian, it goes off. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, Ellesmere cold or Baffin cold is really cold. So, but Siberia is cold and um, that was self-contained. I mean, it took us 13 days. We were hustling. It was 650K roughly. Wow. Uh, we were running a ton mm -hmm. and we were on ice. So yeah. the sleds could glide. Yeah. We had about hundred pounds each of, yeah, of supplies. Yeah. Yeah. Different story in Kamchatka, deep snow. Our pulks this time are narrower and are made out of a really low friction plastic. Hey, what's a pulk for people? The pulk is a sled. Yeah. And so that's how we drag all. So if people are wondering, well, how the hell do they go self-contained for 20, 30 days? Well, we drag everything with us. And, you know, I've done solo trips. I've done trips with teammates. I'm going with a very close friend of mine from Italy, Stefano Gregoretti, an Italian explorer. You guys have done We've done, done some projects. Right? Yeah, yeah, last yeah. few years we've done a lot of projects together because it just, it works out so great. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's incredible how if you go solo or you go with a teammate, it's kind of always balances out in the end. When I've gone solo, I still sort of drag or carry the same amount of stuff. No it never, it's like a different stuff. You know, five, 10 pounds, a few kilos here, a few kilos right. there. So uh, it's a place that, to be honest with you, even thinking about soloing, I just thought, nah, you know what? I want to share this. I want to do this with someone. And Stefano is amazing. He's a machine. Right. So I'm actually interested in that high dichotomy. Like, what's the difference between doing it on your own and doing it with the. With well, I, I ran the across the Gobi Desert solo, which was over 2,000 kilometers. Um, and the Atacama solo, which was 1200 kilometers. Look, it, it, there's a lot of time to think when you're on your own. And, you know, I guess I'm a fairly decent runner. You know what I mean? That's mm -hmm. what I do. I can boogie when I need to. And I make my own decisions. I'm responsible for myself. And I just put the hammer down and I go as hard as I can every day. That's the sort of upside. When you're on a team, you are only as strong on the day as your weakest teammate, right. how, how your teammate is feeling. But the older I get, maybe sharing my expeditions is what it's always been about. When I was in the Gobi, I finished the Gobi expedition and I said to my wife, next time I do one of these really big things, these big efforts, I, I want to do it with someone. I just want to share in the experience with someone. And it was just finding that right person that could crank out the miles and that you get along with and willing to, you know, you got a skin in the game. It's difficult, you know, it's, yeah. it's an all around difficult thing to do. It's very stressful. And uh, ironically, I don't speak Italian. Stefano speaks pretty good English, but not right, great English. Right. And we can communicate perfectly on expeditions. So it's worked out great. Yeah. So I love going on doing these trips with him. It's great. Yeah. I imagine there's the downtimes too, and having that extra person, you know, to talk it through. I mean, I'm sure, I know you've been through difficult periods. You know? you know, what's amazing. It's sense of humor. If somebody has the same, the laughs at the same things you laugh at, yeah, yeah, yeah. that changes. It's the common denominator. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it really makes a difference, right? No, so that if you laugh, you just laugh. That's yeah. the best thing. <laughs> no, I absolutely believe that. Um, so I first came across you when I was working with the CBC in Nairobi, um, reporting for them there, and I got an email from my editor saying, this Canadian guy is running across the Sahara Desert running basically two marathons a day. Is that about right? Well, he was yeah. worked out. I'm not, yeah. it's about a marathon and a half. Was, <laughs> I'll take the two, I'll take the of, two marathons. So, I mean, but. the Sahara was, I spent a lot of time there. I was in North Darfur. It was like 54 degrees one day. I mean, it's a hot place. It's hot, a, yeah. It's a violent place. Mm -hmm. It's a, I mean, so that, so I think that's when a lot of people sort of became aware of what you were doing, right? The one yeah, I mean, being, in the running scene, I'd been competing in ultra marathons leading up to that. And I did well in ultra marathons, right. won a couple of races and stuff, you know, yeah. before that I was racing mountain bike and adventure racing and uh, did a couple of eco qualifiers, stuff like that. And, yeah, you know, and before that, I was smoking a pack a day. I mean, that's sort of my, my story, right? This guy who up until 30 was pretty unhealthy and then right. decided that I needed to flip a switch. But to answer your question about the Sahara, 
yeah, the running the Sahara Project was was huge. It was 7,500 or so kilometers. You know, it was huge distance across six countries, coast to coast, across Africa. And that was pivotal for me because it really opened my eyes to what people like you are able to do so well, which is tell stories. And we had Matt Damon and James Mall and the big Hollywood film crew following this expedition. Right, made a documentary, right? It made a documentary out of it called Running the Sahara um, and collaborated with other great artists, musicians, and, and just people, camera people that were passionate about this project. And I watched the people around me and I was fascinated that they were fascinated in what we were doing. And I always, I never thought, like, who gives a shit about what I'm doing? You know what I mean? This is I mean what they, I really, do. <laughs> they really care. Like, I mean, they were interested. And not only that, National Geographic was involved and they had built a website. And I just saw all the parts come together, creating amazing content, sharing stories from this expedition. Our adventure became a thread to teach and share with others the stories about the culture of North Africa, the people we were meeting, the water crisis in North Africa. And I thought that a cumulative effect of this run through six countries, including all of Libya, right? I mean, all the way across Libya. And it was my second time in Libya. I'd raced in Libya the year before, but all the way across Libya and, and knowing and meeting the Libyan people and how amazing they were and gracious and kind and all. And I thought, geez, there's really something to this. I mean, adventure can be a learning tool. And that set in motion for me. It was like when I finished running the Sahara, I knew that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It was kind of a perfect crucible for you in a way because you had the media aspect woven in there and you're just learning. I'd never seen a camera before running the Sahara. And all of a sudden I got an Academy Award winning director making a documentary. Can you imagine? I mean, it's like, I'm like, what are you kidding me? Like, so he's explaining to me, like, so we'd run all day and, you know, sometimes they couldn't get to us. There was weeks when they'd only have one person out there filming. And after the expedition was over, I'd say, why did you do that? Why did you do this? Mm. And he would explain it to me and I was like, Oh, now I get it. Nice. And so, you know, that that sort of bled into yeah. everything else. I learned so much from that expedition yeah, like, about communication. Communication became the tool. And then there was the advent of social media. You could communicate with the world in a much easier way. Yeah, I want to take us back. I want to get to where this all started. So we, where's home for you? Where did you? I grew up in the Ottawa Valley. You did? Whereabouts? Yeah. Uh, close to Carp. Carp, West nice. Carlton. Yeah, 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 nice. Yeah, you know, it was amazing. When I was growing up, so I'm 50. Yeah. I'm going to be 50 in a few days. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, well, I haven't made it yet. Uh, when I was growing up, I remember like sort of your marker of urbanism. The nearest McDonald's was in Bell's Corners. So for right. people that are from the Ottawa area, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all country roads, yeah, basically. No, it's, it's a fair hope, yeah. Like it's it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And now it's like, it's all boom, it's like, yeah. yeah, urban. It's like Mississauga and Toronto, mm-hmm. right? They all of a sudden just sort of became one city and Oakville so and all the rest right. of it. So you grew up so in the country then, basically. I grew up in the country, grew up yeah. on a hobby farm, you know, yeah. we had horses yeah. and garden and, yeah. you know, cows grazing in the backyard yeah. and all that jazz. What were your parents doing? What was the family business? or the- No family business. Yeah. My dad was a doctor, my mom a nurse. Um, you know, and, uh, they just kind of did their thing. You know what I mean? And my brother and I did our thing growing up and yeah, yeah, it was a different time. Different time when we were younger brother, younger brother, younger brother, year and a half. It was, my brother was the catalyst, the inspiration for me doing what I do now because I was basically a train wreck and he had also been a smoker like I was drinker, heavy, we were both heavy drinkers and he had become a marathon runner and uh, the mid nineties. Iron Man, doing all these things, a rock climber, ice right. climber. And I'd see him doing all this stuff. And I'd be like, this guy's amazing. I said, I want to feel the way he feels. Like, I just want I was, yeah. I was somebody who was very unhappy. Is that coming from your parents? No, too? my Is parents there... were awesome. Yeah. My parents, I mean, really, we had a great, Oh, no, we I mean great. more just the athleticism and like no, that, that I, shift. No yeah. idea. No, no, no idea. Just, yeah. I mean, look, at my mom grew up uh, in a small town in Ohio. Mm-hmm. My dad, originally from Lebanon, immigrated to uh, nice. Canada. And so, you know, we've got this mix, right? right my right. mama's Czech background. And um, so, so you, I don't know, maybe it's in the background. Maybe that's why I'm good in deserts. My dad's side of the family, yeah. I have no idea. You know? Yeah, there's yeah. The, the Marab blood in there. So maybe, yeah. 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 So what's, uh, when's your dad come over? That's... Oh, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, Forever the ago. 60s. Yeah, like yeah. Something, it was a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's passed away. I mean, oh, you I'm know, sorry. but, yeah. uh, you know, life, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, we were we had a great upbringing. We had a great childhood and we had a lot of fun and mm-hmm. we were just running around like, you know, your nearest neighbor right. was 25 acre hayfield away. So that's what you ran across that hayfield if you wanted to play with the other kids, right. you know, we'd just be messing around. 
I don't know what happened. I mean, I just fell off the rails, I guess, in school. I, I give a lot of presentations around the world. Sure. And I talk about what it is that I do. Um, a lot of people wonder how the hell does he make any money being a full-time adventurer? It's mostly through speaking. I right. do a lot of speaking. And I talk about, very honestly, um, being this kid who was very non-athletic, you know, and being in uh, phys ed, gym right. class, and being so anxious about it because right. all the other jocks and the, the the football players and the kids that the gym teacher had a major affection for we were like I was with the nerds we I was one of the like I was one of the guys that yeah. you know was basically an outcast I'm not blaming anybody but it, it just sort of affirmed in my mind I was weak right. incapable of throwing a ball right. not a physical person not the makeup of what an athlete was right. in my mind so not doing any of the traditional you know, sports that exactly did and, exactly yeah. and yeah. so every single person goes through a low point in their life you know there's nothing different about my life than anyone yeah. else's but it's how we interpret that low point and uh i certainly felt going back in time i was a very just a very unhappy unfulfilled person all through my youth i didn't think i was at the time i thought that was normal so tough time in high school, is it partying or is it just oh, I was not, partying like crazy. Yeah, I was yeah. life of the party. I was that outwardly happy guy, but inwardly very unhappy. Right. And that went right through into my 20s. Yeah. I mean, bouncing around from one odd job to the next. Grew up on a horse farm. So I uh, even did a little stint in Texas working on a ranch. And it, to me, it was a normal thing to do. I mean, it was yeah. not an unusual thing to do. Somebody else would be like, well, that's pretty crazy. I mean, you're out there being a cowboy or whatever. But I was like, yeah, but isn't everybody? Like, I, mean, I didn't know that it was that unusual. It's like one of these 20,000 acre, like sprawling. Massive ranch in yeah. Texas, yeah. hundreds of horses. Yeah. And ironically, the yeah. guy that I worked for, he, uh, so we rode what's called reining horses. They're yeah. a special style of quarter horse. And my job as the assistant trainer was to have these horses ready every mm -hmm. morning so that they were ready for him. So I would get up, crack it on, I'd light a smoke, have my coffee, I'd be walking out of my house and I'd be walking down to the barns. Yeah. And here I'd see Terry and he'd be running, he'd be going for a run, little run every morning, you know, got the track suit on and everything. Right. He'd go running past me and I'd think, God, that guy's such an idiot getting up early every morning like that to go running. I mean, right. I will never do that. And I can remember him specifically saying, someday you're going to quit those cigarettes and you're going to run. You'll see. And I, I, I swear he used to say that to me. And I would just laugh. He's planning can you imagine the day? Yeah, but he's I planting the seed though, right? Yeah, maybe. I, yeah. You know, I called him the day that we, or within weeks of finishing running the Sahara. To tell him, I said, dude, you're not going to believe what's happened the last, I can't remember how long it had been, 10 years. Yeah. You're not going to believe what's happened. And it was that, you know, he just laughed, obviously. Laughed. But that's awesome. Anyway, yeah, so that's where I was. And then- um, So university, did you- That was, well, this was after, no, I went to college, Algonquin. Yeah. I think they graduated, I always joke that they graduated me out of high school, pre-computer records, just to get rid of me. I was such yeah. a badass. I was, you know, and yeah. always in trouble, failing grades, drinking in the van kind of thing, you know. Right. And um, socially, I had a great time in high school. I really did. I was that guy. But coming out of high school, going into college, you know, sneaking my way in there and then not really completing my studies in college um, and then bouncing around from one thing to the next. And like, you know, I'm getting closer to 30 and I'm thinking everyone else around me is doing stuff. I was having a hard time making rent or buying food. I had no money. I had yeah. nothing. I was constantly in debt, you know? And I thought, this sucks. I just became more unhappy and didn't know what I was going to do. And then I just, as they say, when you are going through some of the lowest or hardest mm -hmm. times in your life, you sort of look at the people around you. And some people become almost like a beacon. Yeah. And my brother was this, all of a sudden, I'm looking at this guy in a completely different set of glasses on. And I'm thinking, hey, this guy's pretty friggin' inspiring. He was so confident in the things he was doing, the pleasure and the passion that he was deriving from riding his bike or running up the side of a mountain or climbing. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I could do what he does. And that's how it started. And he was open enough to take me out there into the wilderness and go for a hike and do things that I struggled with. Right. Struck because I was a smoker. Yeah. And it was around 97 when I first made that decision. Yeah, yeah. It would take me until 2000 to quit smoking. 99, New Year's Eve 99. I actually smoked my very last cigarette on New Year's Eve 99. And you know, that morning when I woke up on 2000, everything in my life instantly changed in that moment. When I had made this decision to take control of this thing that was symbolically so negative everything else right. in my life, I just was like, I'm going to control this thing in my life. And then everything else 
from that day forward looked different. Like it was logarithmic after that, the improvement in my health, my cardiovascular, I realized or learned, man, I can run up these mountains. And then I, one thing leads to another. I read an article about ultra marathons and I participated in my very first running race three years into this whole deal, 2004, the Yukon Arctic Ultra Marathon, and I win it. And I'm thinking, what the hell? I've never won anything athletic in my life. And I remember finishing that day, 100 miles in the Arctic, middle of winter. I win this deal and I'm thinking, and I was the kid that was the dodgeball target. Did your dad get to see this change? Is, is he, oh, yeah. yeah. They all did. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they Everybody must have been did. worried about you. 20s and... Uh, if they did, they didn't say. Yeah. Different time, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? They were sort of like, find what makes you happy. And it, it was a frustrating philosophy that they had right. because it didn't make any damn sense in right. the, until now. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm like, oh my God, that's gold. It's gold, Jerry, it is, gold. It is, it is gold. But if you're, <laughs> if you're young and you focus and you know what you're doing, I mean, yeah. that's easier yeah. in some ways. But if, if you're having trouble, I mean, I, I think a lot of us floundered through our 20s. 20s are tough, right? Because you're assuming everyone's doing better than you and there's this whole... Absolutely. Like, that's you know, what I was saying when we started. Yeah. Everybody goes through the same thing. Yeah. It's just sort of where we end up with it. Um, let's talk about extremes. I'm fascinated. Like you were talking about the desert in Chile, which, I mean, the, the temperatures there are routinely over 50 degrees mm-hmm. Celsius. Yeah. And I, how do you manage that? You know, I'm good in heat, you know, so we were joking before, maybe yeah. it's a genetic thing. Yeah. Uh, I prefer heat to cold. Right. And that's half, more than halfway to the boiling point of water, right? Yeah. So, so and, and I'll tell you something. Unofficially, I've seen temperatures 55, right. 57 which isn't, it's um, in Death Valley and the canyons in Namibia in the desert in the Atacama, unofficial recordings because we're using handheld instruments. And people say to me, well, did you measure it in the shade? Well, I'm not in the friggin' shade when I'm out there. So I'm in the, you know, I'm the one creating shade. Um, I take my training very seriously. And I spend a year, once I have an expedition that I know I'm going to do, I spend an entire year preparing for that expedition. So Mm -hmm. you talk about the extremes, the heat. I have a sauna barrel in my backyard that gets really hot. I get in that sauna, I sit in it every day. I adapt to the heat. When I'm doing my trail runs in Gatineau Park in Chelsea, long runs, I wait till it's really hot and muggy and I go out and I run. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Last year before going to Namibia to cross the desert there, I went back to the Atacama Desert and trained in December in the Atacama Desert when it's really hot. Um, You bring up an interesting point. I crossed the Atacama Desert in February, the height of summer. I try to do my expeditions in that time of year when that location in the world is the most compelling. The reason I do that is I want students to see Baffin Island in February. I want them to see Kamchatka in February. I want them to see the Atacama Desert in February, Southern Hemisphere, their summer, or the Gobi Desert in July. So I really, you know, it's a desert. Let's go in the middle of the desert summer. You know what I mean? So that heat, when you're in it, to try to describe to someone what the heat is like, the Atacama is also one of the driest places on earth. And the ozone layer is starting, like that hole is starting to repair itself. Uh, This was almost- uh, But that hole is there? It's it's there. there. And eight years ago, it was a lot worse. Seven years ago, a lot worse than it is now. I could not wear short sleeves. I'm a darker skinned Mm -hmm. guy anyhow. I could put on the SPF 50, typically good to go. Like in Namibia, I was good to go. Atacama, no, sir. I was blistering. My face was blistering. I had to go to complete long sleeves. I had to wear gloves on the one side of my hand. I had to wear a glove as well, the yeah. side that was sort of facing the sun most of the time as I ran. Sure. You know, and the sun was hanging in the sky. The sun was made it very difficult and having to wear those long sleeves in that heat that was so oppressive. No, and I was doing long pulls across the desert. So... Very occasionally on roads, only when I had to be. So for that 1,200 kilometers, I'm crossing mountains, salt flats. I was even in the Incan Trail at one point. You know, I'm in places, abandoned railway bed. Uh, You know, I'm in places where no one, no one has been or very few had gone or had last time they'd gone was long, 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 long time ago. So it's hard to make your way. You're thinking about navigation. You're in that heat. You got the long sleeves on. It is insanely dry. Right. You smile and your face explodes. You know, like it's just so dry. Your skin is constantly cracking. How much water are you drinking in a day? Well, in the Atacama, I was doing in the beginning, I was pulling, putting big days in 70K a day and I was probably doing four to six liters every 30. I would meet my crew out at a big backpack and I would carry it. By the end, I was doing a liter every 30. Wow. A liter, I had adapted to the heat. That's amazing. Your body adapts that. My body adapts very well in heat. 
in the in Namib Desert, which we did last year. Right. So Equally as hot in sometimes it was a it was a very difficult desert because the terrain was totally unpredictable, plus you're dealing with wildlife, right? You'd be super careful. We could not travel at night ever. You know, and then out of camera I ran basically as the sun was coming up. I'd start out in the dark and I'd go all day. Right. Uh, but we didn't have that option or that luxury in the Namib. We had right. to go when the sun was up all and right. stop before the sun went down because that's when the animals are hunting. Yeah. Uh, so you're in that heat all the time. Yeah. And the vegetation in yeah. the uh, Namib desert wanted to get you also. So that, you know, that compi- compounded yeah. with the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Even, know, even the vegetation heat. is harsh down there. Yeah. It's thorns like you never seen yeah. probably. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, incredible. And what, so you're talking about lions? Lions, hyenas, baboons. Wow. You know, the baboons are pretty scary, I got to tell you. Yeah. Because they're staring at you, right? And then they follow you. Yeah. Because they're curious. And there's parts of that wilderness that we were in that, again, uh, the north arm of Fish River Canyon, where nobody's actually, uh, you know, south part, tons of people. North part, nobody goes. Yeah. And so here we are you know, cutting across that canyon on the north arm yeah. and we run into baboons and they're not afraid of us at all. I no. mean, they're just staring at us. They're super curious. Yeah. You have 30 baboons following you yeah. for 15K of, of that, you know, and then before they finally got bored of us and took off and I was just thinking, oh man, I hope they don't get mad at They've us. They've got a set of fangs in them. They scary. do, very scary. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, uh, listen, polar bears and baboons. So that's the two things for me, you know? Yeah, those are, I had a friend attacked by a baboon. He was having a picnic in Nairobi in a national park there and, just went at him, jumped him, bit him in the shoulder. No. Yeah, no. I had to punch him off. Really? So yeah. He's lost feeling in the, like the half of his hand because of it. Oh, was, my gosh. Yeah, no. So they will. You know, they're worth being worried about. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Yeah. No, no. I was not. Uh, yeah. And strong. like is, Yeah. Well, they look strong. Yeah. They look strong, fast. Yeah. Like, you see, like, you think of a baboon. Yeah. But when you see 30 baboons or 40 baboons together. No, I know. They call it, is it a troop of baboons? I think that sounds I right. I always get yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's. No, it's not a gaggle. Yeah, somebody can Google. Somebody out there, Google. Yeah. Somebody Google it. Yeah, <laughs> there's the answer. Um, I, so you were talking about blistering out in the desert there, to having to wear the long sleeve. Blisters. I've watched several videos of you you doing what you do, and blisters feature fairly heavily. I mean, some of them are just ugly. I'm, I'm going to tell you some. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to lay this one on you, and you're going to think, okay, there's something wrong with Ray. But um, I've said this before. I've been quoted. Ultra running, 90% mental, the other 10% is all in your head. Yeah. And the further yeah. along in this game I go, yeah. the more I realize it's our mental processes and it's our procedures that we follow and how we approach them mentally mm-hmm. that change everything, even from a physical perspective. Right. I'll tell you what I mean. The Atacama Desert, giant blister. It got completely out of control, very infected. I ran through it. It would have been an expedition finisher, but I mentally knew that if I can run through this blister, this infected blister, which we had to cut my shoe in half in the Atacama to fit my foot in because it was wrapped in gauze, hurt like hell, but I could deal with the pain. But if it got worse, like from an infection perspective, I knew the expedition was over because I would just collapse mentally. Right. But it didn't get worse. It hurt like hell, but it actually healed as we moved along through the expedition. As you're running 70 kilometers. As we have some days 70, some days 50, just depends on the day. a lot of kilometers either way. A lot, yeah. a lot in yeah. salty, sandy, silty yeah. terrain. So you've cut your shoe in half and how are you cut the that top of the shoe in half, then we duct taped it back together so that it would make, like it was like a giant clown shoe and I had to wear that for probably three, four days and then it healed enough that we could start using smaller bandages and got to a point where I could just run with a small little Band-Aid on it. But here's the point of my story. Yeah. Fast forward. Multiple expeditions later. Yeah. I'm older. I like to say I'm in the best shape of my life right now. Right. Training for Namibia, which was one of the most difficult runs I've done. Mm-hmm. Not the most difficult. The Atacama for sure was the most difficult. Right. I ran across the Namib Desert. I did not wear socks on my shoes. I'm wearing like almost a racing flat. I prefer to wear shoes that are right. super lightweight, yeah, but yeah. I, I have protection in my shoes. It's a longer discussion. If somebody wants to know, reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook. I'll message you back. Yeah. But- I ran in bare feet, no blisters, right? Now I adapted over time. Right. Everything in my body, I have ran 14,000 kilometers in right. deserts, give or take. Right. So but over it, those 14,000 games, my body has learned to adapt to that scenario so well that now I yeah. know it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. You watch some of the videos from maybe, I think I wore socks three times. I you're assuming you're getting them. sand in your shoe and that's I guess, causing I, I, They were full of sand. And that would do I it I used you, to right? keep the sand from going in the shoes by wearing gaiters and I didn't wear any of that stuff. Pulled yeah. the shoes on in the morning, off I went. Amazing. And I think it's because there's an adaptive process. Right. And over time, 
and, and my mental approach to it, that right. I'm not going to get injured. We have an old industry built around running will get you injured. Now, here's how to prevent yourself from getting injured. That's right. always what we talk about. Right, when right. Running and the word injury seem to be synonymous with one another, right? But they don't have to be. It can be instead running is very good for me and healthy, so I'm going to do a lot of it. You know what I mean? It's just a different perspective on things. I want to get back to the Arctic because you spent a lot of time. Um, what, what is it that appeals to you about the Arctic? I'm a late convert to the Arctic. I actually want to go back. I want to say when I was in university, I had this professor. I did a Canadian history course, and part of it was on the north. And I remember we were in a classroom of it's like a lecture hall of 60 people, and this professor, John Jennings, great guy, he says, uh, comes in, going to lecture us on the north. Who here's, uh, who here's been to Florida? Everyone in the room, hands up. Okay, who here has been north of 60? And literally like two people mm. in that room. And he's like, this is your country, people. Yeah. Explore it. So I've been fortunate. I've met a lot of extraordinary people from the stuff that I do. And it just always seems to happen at the right time. I believe in karma. I believe in all these things. I uh, have ran into these people and met these people that have opened doors for me to learn about places and things. After running the Sahara at the Toronto Film Festival, when they first showed it in 2007, right. sitting in the audience, uh, you know, Matt Damon does his thing. He goes up and he shows the film and then whatever. And I, my wife and I are sitting beside this guy. It was Phil Fontaine, his national chief at the time. Yeah. And I just started a conversation with him. And I started learning a little bit about our First Nations. Right. And that I had zero knowledge of as yeah. a Canadian, yeah. zero knowledge. Yeah. No, it's and right I mean, away decided that, that I wanted to learn as much as I could because these are the first people, you know? I started learning a lot from Phil and other people that right. he introduced me to. And then I made a lot of different friends um, within the First Nations community, you know, lifelong friends, people that I'm very close to now. But nonetheless, you brought up the Arctic. And so around this time, I went to a Iqaluit for a visit and I was meeting some people and talking to some people. I think I was, I met with Commissioner Hansen at the mm -hmm. time. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Uh, my memory is just not the, the you, you have issues with the, the oil we get, the, the yeah, short term, you know? I just hit 50 here. Dude, so you know what I'm talking <laughs> about, right? I know exactly anyway. what you're talking about. So I instantaneously knew that I would be back up there and that I wanted to start doing stuff up there. And then I, in 2007, yeah. made a project where I would run uh, across Baffin Island, the mm -hmm. Shake Pass, from uh, you know the fjord to fjord, and then I would fly out to Newfoundland and I would run what existed of the East Coast Trail right. at the time, and then immediately fly out to BC and run the West Coast Trail. So sort of these three coastal areas. And it was funny because at the time, it just seemed perfectly sensible to me that there there's this massive Arctic coast, obviously, in Canada, but that this... Coastal, you know, being up on Baffin, it was this mysterious place, a beautiful place, but uh, beautiful mountains that mm. to so many other Canadians, right. just nobody really, you'd say Thor, you know, Mount Thor, the yeah. Akshik Pass, and people were like, what's that? Where's that? So I wanted to go there. And I've been all over the North. And um, it, honestly, to this day, the single greatest place on earth to me, the most yeah. beautiful place yeah. on earth. People yeah. say, where's the most beautiful place you've been? I've been very lucky to be in 70 countries, crossing almost every large mm. desert on the planet. There is no place on this planet as beautiful as the Canadian Arctic, in my opinion. There's a, there's a couple of questions I wanna ask um, that I'm gonna ask everyone when we do these podcasts. And one is, uh, is there a piece of gear that you bring with you everywhere you go that's maybe super useful? Is it maybe a talisman? Is it maybe a I have all kinds of, well, I have this ring yeah. that was doubles as my, big my yeah, as my wedding ring. So to describe it, cause yeah. it's not, we can't smash it through the microphone yeah. so people can see it, but it's basically a, a silver ring. It's a square yeah. rectangle with a black onyx stone on it. And it was, I'll tell you where I got this ring. So one of the guys that was on the crew for running the Sahara, uh, Tuareg, the nomads of the Sahara, the, the, or the Tuareg people, and he was uh, with us, joined our team. Mm -hmm. And uh, his name was Adawa, maybe real name, maybe not. He was a professional smuggler. Right. And he was helping to broker entry from Niger into Libya and uh, crossing that part of the border, which is going into place and it, we were in places that really you're not supposed to be, but right. we were there. Which are now, I think, completely inaccessible. Oh, that yeah. whole part of the world is completely inaccessible. Yeah. But anyhow, so he had this ring and early in the expedition, I said, wow, I'd say, wow, that ring is so cool, dude. You know, yeah. and he'd say, yeah, well, you know, he'd explain to me, it's the Tuareg are silversmiths, like that's their thing, yeah. right? And they're incredible artists and it's a one-off and mm. deep inside this ring, somewhere inside it is like a prayer. 
No. It's inside there, welded in there. You can't open it up. I said, dude, that is so cool. So anyhow, we go off running across the Sahara. Two months later, it's my birthday. Right in the middle of the Sahara, he walks up to me. He says, hey, Ray, and he hands me this piece of crumpled paper. And I thought it was, because he's a funny guy, I thought it was like some kind of joke yeah, about yeah. me getting old on an expedition. I don't know. I didn't open it up. It's the ring. Beautiful. And I, you know, I wanted, to, I said, dude, I can't take this. He's yeah. like, no, I'll be totally insulted if you don't take this. So it became yeah. symbolic and it's been with me on every expedition every since night. then, you know? So that's it. I mean, you know, and it doubles as my wedding ring. So what's the prayer inside? Do you know? I don't know. No idea. Never asked. Well, whatever it is, it's working. Clearly. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope. You know, but I also, I, there's certain gear that I never leave home with it. I have a, you know this from being a, yeah. a Leatherman multi-tool. Yeah. I have it on every single thing that I do. I have various Leathermans. It's like my iPhones. You know, I have several because I use them for, that's why I shoot film and right. photography and all that stuff. And I have like special ones, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, I've got a million Leathermans, yeah. stuff like that, you know? Yeah, phenomenal. Um, favorite place in Canada? Is there a place that if- Oh, the Shake Pass, Baffin Island. Yeah, so tell me about that place. And actually, can I back up? Kick it Tarjwak more than even the pass itself. Being in Kick, because I have friends in Kick, I love being there. I love hanging out with... You know, my friend Billy Arnicook and his family. And, yeah. and um, it's, so you, as you see, you talk about a friendliness. It's like my wife's a Newfoundlander. Yeah. You go to Harbor Grace where she's from. Everybody, the doors are open. That's how it is in kick. And everybody's just so... Describe that setting though, when you're picturing it in your head, what are you seeing? Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I see, um, I, I, it's in an indescribable horizon mm-hmm. in all seasons. Yeah. I've been summer, I've been fall, I've been winter. There's no trees. It's right. a treeless landscape, but it is strikingly beautiful. And you know this from being in the Sahara. No trees, gorgeous. Yeah. You know, devoid yeah. of life. Yeah. You know, other than the people that bring it in and the wildlife, but beautiful. The Atacama Desert. There's a 400 kilometer section of Atacama that I went through mm-hmm. that is quite literally the driest place on earth, this right. 400 kilometer right. section. And nothing lives there. They just yeah. recently found a bacteria. Beautiful. But Endless horizon yeah. kind of is the thing But too, kick, yeah? it's yeah. like the beauty of it. And But it, you know, I've always said this, the, it's the people, the culture, the places that I go, that's what always makes places so awesome. That's what makes Newfoundland so awesome. You can topographically interchange it with Scotland for yeah. the most part, right. right? But the Newfoundlanders, the people make it amazing, right? It's the same thing with the Canadian Arctic. It's gorgeous, a beautiful mountains, huge fjords, but it's the people that make it so spectacular. One last question. Um, on all these expeditions, there must have been a point where you're like, I'm, this is going badly and I may be at the end here. Like, has there been a near-death experience? Oh, has there been- multiple. 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 But I plan these expeditions. I really plan every step out. Sure. I have been over this route for Kamchatka for six months every day staring at the computer one meter to one meter to one looking at every map i could get my hands on you know trying to dial this thing down but yeah i broke through a river up in sacklick fjord in Mm. the middle of february in in 2017 in uh in uh, northern new nets right and i um literally almost died Stefano was with me. I was scouting ahead because I had the most experience. Right. And uh, it was a really weird weather scenario that yeah. winter. They were having warm, then cold, warm, then cold. Tons of snow in a place that there shouldn't have been tons of snow. Should have been wind blowing and much colder. We were uh, going up through a very narrow canyon. And when we were near the top and I was scouting ahead, I broke through this ice. I was being pulled under the water because it was uphill. Being pulled under the water and I had my snowshoes on with the crampons and everything, right? And Because the snow would go from meters deep to wind blowing. I, but I had everything undone because I travel on river systems with my boots undone on purpose in case something ever happened, I can get my boots off right. with my snowshoes. And um, I almost almost did not get out of that hole alive. It was just seconds away. He could not get to me because all the, it was. I broke through overflow and then broke through ice underneath the overflow. And with the current that was happening and it was just a bad scenario. Your- it was completely unpredictable. I, I was panicking. I pulled my leg through the water, tried to get my snowshoes off. And in doing so, hyperextended my right leg and it hooked the side of the hole. It came out in front of me and so hooked the side of the hole. in this position. Totally. Oh yeah. yeah. Like my hamstring to this day, yeah. that, that hamstring. And, you know, the whole way across Namibia, every day I felt that hamstring, you know? Wow. So anyhow, I, I pushed against it because it was on a, you see what I'm doing with my hand right now? Yeah, so the, 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 yeah, side, the, yeah. It was kind of like on a sideways push and I was able to push myself up enough that with momentum and panic and adrenaline, I was able to roll out of the hole from there and rolled into the snow. 
and got as much snow on myself as I could to absorb as much of the moisture. I was up to my neck in this water, right? You know, up, my elbows were hooked on the sides of this hole. Like right. instinctively, my arms went out to the side, right. and that's what was keeping me up. So you knew to do this. Like if you go into the water, it was you just completely in instinctive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think anybody would. I, I think I'd love to pat myself on the back and say, "Well, it's all the good." Hard work and yeah. training. I don't think it was. I think it was panic, fear, and thinking I'm never going to see my family again. Sure. You know, and, but I'll tell you something. I came out of that hole. I was laughing because I could not believe I survived. Stefano couldn't get to me because the ice would have collapsed. So right. I made my way to him. I had all my gear, my emergency gear. Canada Goose had made me these custom down pants that I'd carried with me on expeditions right. forever in yeah. case something like this ever happened. Right. Threw those things on. They're good to minus so 70. Yeah. Threw them on. My boots, though, were frozen blocks of ice. Right. You know, spare boots. I mean, you can only bring so much gear. So uh, I would just smash the ice out of them each day. Um, and, but my feet were frozen. So you're you wearing know, frostbitten toes and blocks of ice, basically. Yeah, for two days. And then we weathered a snowstorm. And then eventually, uh, my buddy John, who's a photographer, was he had come with us. He had started at the other end of the fjord, like at the, from the other end of the, the peninsula. And his goal was to track some caribou and photograph them uh, with some hunters that he'd hooked up with sure. on snow machines and capture this these photos of this winter caribou from a distance. We did not want to disturb the caribou. Sure. And I called him on our staff phone. I said, hey, dude, where are you guys? You know? Yeah. And he's like, here. And I gave him my lat long. We're about 100 K away or 150 K away. And I said, you got to come get us. Like I'm done. Do I was hypothermia. Oh yeah, yeah totally. Sure. Two days, yeah. couldn't go to the bathroom, body not functioning. But you know what? We laid in that tent for 24 hours, Stefano and I, I got really sick after that. And we laid in the tent and I talked about, you know, you approach the Arctic with a humbleness. We don't know anything. Unless you're Inuit, you don't understand that place. You don't right. understand the Arctic and know the Arctic. Right. They are the Arctic. We are not the Arctic. You know, right. I'm I'm just visiting. And I have to be gracious in that humility when I'm there right. and understand I can learn as much as I can. But, hey, man, slow it down, right? And it really hammered that home in my head. So what's coming out of that conversation with Stefano? Though? We're talking about, I'm thinking, dude, it's like I thought I was like reborn. Like it was... The strangest sensation where I truly dodged a bullet. Yeah. I remember being in that water and seriously thinking, if I can get these boots off and my feet freeze solid and they're two stumps and they got to take them off, but I can see my kids again, take them. I don't yeah. care. I want to see my family again. Like I realized truly, I say I know what's important, but I can tell you that in that moment, I really yeah, it was right there. very clearly knew what was the most important thing in my life. And so I got out of that. I got out of that situation and we laid in that tent and I explained this to him and I said, and he said to me, you know, Ray, it, it, this sounds like a horrible thing to say, but he goes, in a way, it's kind of like a gift. It's a strange, weird baptism kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I said, dude, I'm, I'm totally reading what you're saying because I was immediately cleansed of all the negative energy that I'd harbored in my life. I'd had relationships in my life where friendships that I tried to hold on to where I would write people emails and I was the reacher outer. And the only time that these people would reach back was if they needed something. And I felt compelled that I had to reciprocate constantly. There was no animosity or anger or judginess. Right, right. I just was done. And I was like, I know what's important to me in my life. I know who's important to me in my life. I have clarity. And do you know, we left that part. That was first of three stages. Left that, flew through Calouette, so got my ski gear, yeah. went up and skied across Baffin. Right. Middle of February. After that. Like immediately after. Immediately after. Wow. And then from there, went up to uh, Northwest Territories and fat biked 500K from Wrigley to Fort Good Hope, unsupported again. So the expedition just, it was just take students on a three-part journey across the Canadian Arctic. That's right. where we were doing with this thing. But anyway, you asked me about it. I, I tell really long stories. You asked me about a near-death experience. That was the I mean, that's the incredible, closest. though. It's incredible you continued on, though, too. Changed my perspective. Yeah. I'll tell you something. This is going back to the 90% mental, the other 10% is all in your head. It changed my perspective again and hit the reset switch on what I thought I was capable of as well. Not from, hey, I dodged this ball and I survived this thing, I can survive anything. Right. But instead, the appreciation of being alive right. and how awesome it was to be able to do the things I do and to truly appreciate that I can go and do these things. Right. And it took my running to a whole new level. I ran across Namibia. Last big running expedition I did before this 2017 incident, mm -hmm. 
every second day, achy, get up, take an Advil, get going, more Advil, get going. Namibia, I took Advil once, one Advil the entire time. I didn't need them. I didn't need it. And I honestly believe that 2017 was part of that process and that clarity. It was a letting go of all these things that I thought I needed that perhaps I didn't even need. So Stefano was right, basically, is what you're saying. 100%, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy when you go through something like that together, you know, and uh, people wondered, you know, my friends that know me really well, do I think about that often? I I don't. I can't even really now remember what it was like 100% to be in that water. All I know is that I truly understand when you go to a fight or flight or to a panic mode. Like, listen, when I went in that water, Mm -hmm. right before I went in the water, I turned back and I looked at Stefano and we're sitting by a fireplace, which is approximately... Mm -hmm three meters away. Yeah. I looked back at him. He was three meters away. And I said, I'm going to scout this last set of rapids. Yeah. I turned and I walked forward two steps and broke in. When I went in that water and was instantaneously panicked, I forgot that he was there. I thought he was around a bend a kilometer away and could not see me. That's just where my brain went. Wow. I was- Like, I need to get out of here myself. Yeah, and I'm yelling, Stefano, I know you can't see me, but I just broke through the ice. And he's standing right behind me. Don't panic, dude, I'm, I'm right here. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm. Everything, the world was upside down instantly. So I understand what it means to be panicked and to be terrified, because I was truly terrified. And I have no, you know, yeah. there's no bravado there. That's real. I was scared shitless in that water, you know? But I learned from it and I've done multiple Arctic projects since then. And I'm very much more careful now, you know? So I think we've covered a lot of stuff here. Yeah. I hope that's not too much for you. No, we can work with that. Uh, But listen, Ray, thank you very (laughs) much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, no, thanks for being on the podcast. This has been One Ocean Presents Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast, and we were talking to Royal Canadian Geographical Society explorer-in-residence Ray Zahab, and you can follow Ray's adventures at canadiangeographic.ca and rayzahab.com. Our conversation took place in the Sir Christopher Ndache reading room at the RCGS headquarters at 50 Sussex Drive here in Ottawa. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Check back with us next week for our next edition of Explore the Canadian Geographic Podcast. Support for this podcast comes from the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. For 90 years, the RCGS has been dedicated to making Canada better known to Canadians and the world through print and digital media under the Canadian Geographic brand. It also funds the creation of educational materials, expeditions, research, public events, and much more. You can support the work of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society by making a tax-deductible donation today at rcgs.org forward slash donate.